So welcome to Awaken. My name is Frank, and I'm one of the pastors, and I'm honored to be able to share with you all today. So you'd have to be living under a rock if uh, you have missed what is commonly called the hashtag MeToo movement, spawned in October of last year. This has become a social media movement, a social media phenomenon that is focused on empowering women to speak out against assault, sexual assault and harassment, in particular in the workplace. And so, a bit of self-disclosure here, I tend to not be a big social media guy. I tend to check Facebook maybe once a week, and I don't even get Twitter and Snap and all that fun stuff. And so when I hear about, uh, I tend to approach social media movements and stuff with a great deal of skepticism. And part of that is for me, I'm a bit of a cynic. I tend to think that the media on both sides, to be fair, can tend to just get really loud and just shout about every little transgression and offense. And so even though I work very hard to stay on top of news and current events, I can tend to tune out the noise that can oftentimes accompany the news. And so for me, that, that's what has been happening or what had been happening with me regarding the hashtag MeToo movement. For me, I kind of looked at it and said, yes, there are absolutely disgusting men who do disgusting things, but that's nothing new. And if they're now being exposed and found out for their disgusting acts, good. They deserve what they get. I don't have a problem with that. Let's just not make it a bigger thing than it is. Well, Two things happened to change my view on this. The first was a quote by Natalie Portman who shared this insightful truth. And she shared, it's only some men who do the harassing, but it's all women who fear the violence and aggression. It has an effect like terror. Everyone is afraid to walk down the street alone at night. I read that and that really impacted me because I know what that feels like. I was a freshman in college in 1990 during the Gainesville murders. And I remember it was literally in the first, within the first month of starting classes. And when I was first on campus, the mood was exciting. There were thousands of students walking all over campus, talking, laughing. And then the Gainesville murders happened. And now when I was walking on campus, everything had completely changed. First, there were a lot less students on campus walking around. Everyone who was walking around was walking around in groups. And there was this palpable fear that you could just literally walk on campus and feel the tension. And the idea that one man, right, and it was crazy, it would have been irrational to think that Danny Rawling, who ended up getting caught for this, would just stand in the middle of campus and start killing people. That's not how it worked. It was an irrational fear, and I get that logically, but in the moment, it was terrifying. And the idea that one guy could cause thousands and thousands of people in a city to be terrified helps me understand what Natalie Portman is talking about. Absolutely, it's possible. And so not only was I able to understand and empathize, but sympathize as well. And so when I read this quote, I thought about how it felt back at the UF campus in 1990, and I was saying, yeah, I, I can't imagine being in that type of environment, having that type of fear in, in what should otherwise be a normal setting, right, in the workplace, 
to have a twinge of fear every time my male boss called me to go into his office for some reason. Whenever uh, a coworker, a male coworker decided to come and they wanted to talk to me unusually or to be alone with someone with a man I didn't fully trust. That would be terrifying. But I said there was two things that kind of changed my mind on this one. And the second is the story that we're going to go through today. And it's a story of David and Bathsheba. Because I'm assuming most of you all would agree with me. We all understand that throughout history, there's always been evil, corrupt, and disgusting men doing evil, corrupt, and disgusting things. Yes, there are women who are evil, corrupt, and disgusting too. But I don't know. I feel like when men act this way, they do just, their damage done is exponentially greater. Just my opinion. I don't want to get in a fight about it. I'm just saying that that's my observation, right? And so when I read the stories of Harvey Weinstein and David Mueller and others, it, is, it was easy for me to just push them to the margins and say, well, yes, they're disgusting, but this is nothing new, right? Uh, the problem happens when disgusting pigs get into positions of power and when bad men do bad things. But then we read the story of King David, a man after God's own heart, and we read about what he does with Bathsheba, and it makes you wonder, right? If the problem is not simply bad and disgusting men doing bad and disgusting things, but it can even be good men who do bad and disgusting things, then what in the world are we supposed to do? What in the world are we supposed to handle a situation like that? Well, that's what we're going to wrestle through and wrestle with during the course of our morning here. So if you have your Bibles, we can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to jump into the story of David and Bathsheba. So 2 Samuel chapter 11 Verses 1 through 3. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, if that helps. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So two things I want to note right here from this passage. The first is maybe it's a bit strange for you to think that there's a season for kings to go to war. What is that? All about. Well, you have to understand that back in David's day, they didn't have the benefit of modern technology. If you wanted to go to war, you had to march on foot. And so if it's freezing cold or if it's rainy, it's not all that convenient to go marching off to war. It can be a really messy uh, situation, and you can basically tank your entire army before you ever get to the battlefield. And so, but in March or April, which is when this was, so right about our time right now, what you notice is it starts to warm up, most of the rains have passed, and it's a good time to go and conquer. But David was not. 
even though he'd been in the forefront of the battlefield uh, all these times before, for whatever reason, he chose to stay behind in Jerusalem this time. The Bible doesn't tell us why. He might have had very good reasons to do so. Maybe there were things to do in Jerusalem, uh, problems to tackle. Maybe he was just tired of war. Maybe he just needed a break, a little sabbatical. We don't know what the reasons are. But we do know that he was idle when he should have been fighting. And that's the point that I think we want to take from this. That when we're idle when we should be fighting, that is a time when it is very easy for sin to creep in. And it did for him. Second thing I want you to observe from this passage that I thought was interesting is Bathsheba. I don't know if you noticed, she was identified here as the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That's actually pretty unusual if you've read the Bible for a woman in particular to be identified two different ways, not only who she's the daughter of, but also who she's the wife of. And that's not accidental. When you go further in the book of 2 Samuel, I think it's 2 Samuel 23, you'll actually read a passage where the author shares about David's mighty men, his 30 mighty men. And these were the, the elite, right, in David's army. They were the greatest warriors he had, the greatest commanders he had. And what's interesting is you're going to find two names in there that are going to be familiar, Eliam and Uriah. That's right, so these are two of David's best and brightest commanders. And not only that, it also mentions in that passage that Eliam's father is Ahithophel. Ahithophel. Try and say that one. Ahithophel, who is one of David's closest advisors. So Bathsheba is the daughter, I'm sorry, is the daughter of one of David's mighty men the wife of one of David's mighty men, and the granddaughter of Dave, one of David's closest advisors. In other words, this is Bathsheba was no common woman. And not only that, you would expect that Bathsheba would be one of the most protected women in that entire nation. But despite that, David, it didn't keep King David from using his power, using his authority to take advantage of her. 2 Samuel 11, verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Sorry, that's what happens when you read the New Living Translation. Anyway, um, so I shared with you earlier this quote from Natalie Portman and how she used the word terror. Well, if you can imagine where Bathsheba is at, she is anxious, worried, and terrified. Messengers have come to her door. They knocked on her door. She opens the door, and the messengers tell her, the king wants to see you personally. If you're in Bathsheba's shoes, what are you thinking is, is happening here, right? She's thinking, he's going to tell me my father's dead. He's going to tell me that my husband was killed on the battlefield, right? Because these are men close to David. That's what she's going to tell. So all the way there, she is worried, terrified that I'm going to get bad news about my family. And then she's standing in front of the king. And the king looks at her, and she realizes by the way he's looking at her, it's not bad news he's here to tell me. And then he sends everyone away, so it's just you and him. And then he takes advantage of her, and then he sends her home like a common slave. That's a hashtag me too story if I've ever heard one. 
But wait, that's not all. Because that's not where the story ends. Verse 5. Later when Bathsheba discovered she was pregnant, she sent David, David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Now David is a problem. He's in a bit of a pickle here. And he can't hide his sin anymore. But that doesn't keep him from trying. So instead of admitting his sin, instead of admitting his wrongdoing, he thinks up a creative way to cover up. He calls, he recalls Uriah from the battlefield and tells him, give me an update and then I'm going to send you home to be with your wife. But Uriah doesn't choose to go home. Instead, he sleeps at the front of the palace, rationalizing to himself that if my men are sleeping on the cold, hard floor or cold, hard ground on the battlefield, then I'm not going to go home and sleep on a nice, comfortable bed beside my wife. I'm going to stay right here and suffer alongside them. Uriah was a better man in that moment than David was. And his nobility and character foils David's plans, so he goes even further to cover up. Verse 14. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he'll be killed. What is happening here? For five weeks now, we have spent this time going through David's life, going through how every step of the way, David has sought God, sought God's counsel, sought God's wisdom, sought God's leading, and lived in a way that pleases God. His every action up until this point has to put God's will, God's plan, God's desire first. David has not only been an example to follow, but... He has not shown any signs of failure. He hasn't given any hint that he's capable of such a willful and terrible sin. That's what you look for, right? When you hear a story or when you know someone who does a terrible, awful, disgusting thing, what do we tell ourselves? We tell ourselves, well, he had a monster in time. There was always something there. There was some hint. There was some clue that we should have noticed to tell us they were capable of doing something like that. Some clue that would shown us the monster that was inside. But with David, there was nothing. The Bible doesn't give us any clue that he was capable of this. This is the type of thing that's never supposed to happen. And yet, it does. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. That's right. Yes. David takes Bathsheba for his wife. It might be interesting to delve into that a little bit, but we're not going to have time to go through it today. The final sentence is what I want us to focus on. The Lord was displeased with what David had done. That's an understatement. In the Hebrew, this word displeased, right, means to tremble and to be grieved. The word is not disappointed. 
the idea is broken up. The Lord was broken up about what David had done, about David's sin. You know, when bad things happen, we can have this tendency to think that maybe God doesn't care. After all, if God cared, then he would have prevented this bad thing from happening somehow, right? That's the idea that we have, that if God really cared, then the bad thing that happened would have been stopped by God somehow. But what if God did? What if he has? What if God has stopped bad things from happening time and time again, millions of times over, billions of times over, stopped something bad from happening just because he could? But we wouldn't know about it, right? Because that bad thing never happened. Have you ever had that experience where you've had um, a near accident or you've had a lucky break and you thought to yourself, whoa, that was a close one. Right? What if God was keeping something bad from happening to you, but we just move on with life? We don't even thank God. We don't give him any credit. We just think, whoa, that was a close one. And then we move on with life. Just yesterday, my daughter Talia was driving a car, and um, she came home, and she told me about how she was almost in an accident while she was driving. Right? Almost or God stopped. I don't know, but I am grateful that it happened. So I share that because I want you to understand, I could be wrong on this one, but if God is who we think he is, then I bet this stuff happens all the time. God's stopping bad things from happening and us just not even knowing at all. God absolutely does care about us. But you know what else? There are also sins that happen because we want them to happen. And that was the case with David. David's sin was no accident that God might have intervened and spared him from. David's act was an act of intent. David's sin was a result of a choice. More than one choice. Multiple choices. Over and over and over again. And that is what makes the story so tragic. David wanted this to happen. He chose for it to happen. And as a result, God was grieved, displeased, and broken up. So, we're a long way into the story before we hit our first lesson. But here's the first lesson I want you to take from today. When we crave something or someone that we can't have or shouldn't have, run. When we crave something or someone we can't have or shouldn't have, run. This past week, my wife and I had a chance to share with the saints in the Awakening crew. And during that time, we shared this verse from 2 Timothy. It says, run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. So the idea of lust is this inordinate, overwhelming craving that usually, but is not always, tied to something sexual. 
And what I wanted you to learn from this passage is that God's command is when you are struggling with lust, you run. When you're struggling with lust, run. In that moment, you have to understand that when you're wrestling with lust, what is being tested in your life is not your strength, but your wisdom. It takes strength to resist. It takes wisdom to run. There are times when God is testing your strength. In Ephesians chapter 6, God talks about how when you're facing uh, the enemy and the spiritual forces of evil and authority in the heavenly realms, what are you to do? You're to put on the armor of God and stand firm. In that moment when you are tested by spiritual forces, what is being tested is your strength and your faith in the Lord. And in that time, you will stand. But when you're facing lust, what is being tested is not your strength, it's your wisdom. Will you have, will you take God's wisdom and take God's counsel and command and run? David doesn't run. Instead, he indulges himself. And that sin of lust and indulgence led to grave consequences, not just for himself, but also for his family, for his descendants. My challenge is for you to not fall into that same trap. So in the next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting verse 1 through 7, we see how, what happens when David is confronted by Nathan. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb, and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. Before David was confronted by Nathan, he didn't even realize the depths of his sin. And I know you're sitting there wondering, how could David not have known how bad he had been? But some of us get it. Some of us know as we look back on our lives, there was a time in our lives when we were in a relationship that we knew was wrong for us, but we didn't care. There's a time when we wanted someone or something so badly that we were willing to do anything to have them. We compromised, maybe we even sinned, and we did not care. I've been there. Some of you have been there as well. I wasn't there for super long, but it was long enough. And I look back and I wonder, how could I have done that? And I wish I could say the answer is, I don't know. But that wouldn't be true. The answer is, I wanted what I wanted and I didn't care about anything else. And that's where David was until Nathan confronted him. Until the Lord brought David face to face 
with the depths of his sin and until the Lord revealed the consequences of his sin. The consequences being your family will now be filled with strife. Your own son is going to rebel against you and take the kingdom away from you. Your wives are going to be taken by another man in the same way you took Bathsheba. And oh, the son that is going to be born of Bathsheba, he's going to die. Verse 13, then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Finally, David is born broken, and finally David confesses his sin. Second lesson, sin does its best work in isolation and secrecy, so expose your sin to the light. Sin does its best work in isolation and in secrecy, so expose your sin to the light. David's confession out loud saved his life and turned his life around. Not every leader does this. Richard Nixon famously said, I am not a crook, after he was confronted about Watergate. And of course, Bill Clinton, he said, that depends on what the meaning of the word is, is when he was confronted about Monica Lewinsky. Not every leader today confesses their wrongdoing. As a matter of fact, most of the ones who are, especially the ones in the public sphere, it take, they have to be forced into a confession, which makes you wonder, is it really a confession at all? David did not need that. David confessed. And not only did David confess, but he repented. He cries out to the Lord, and he changes his ways. Psalm 51 is a uh, psalm that David wrote in the aftermath of being confronted by Nathan. And here's just a portion of what he writes. He says, Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God and renew a loyal spirit within me. So this past summer, our family took a trip to Wilmington, North Carolina to be part of an LT program. It was high school LT. Uh, they call it life training. And it's a week-long conference for high school students to get equipped and empowered and to grow in their faith. And uh, our family had gone for about three or four years. And so... Uh, during that conference, I was asked uh, for the second year in a row to lead the worship night. And so, for those of you who know my musical talents, I want you to understand that has nothing to do with what you might think it means. They didn't ask me to sing. They didn't ask me to play an instrument. They just simply said that we have a worship night that goes for about two, two and a half hours in the middle of this conference, and we want you, Frank, to help facilitate that time. And that means that I was to weave a teaching with the worship songs in a way that really impacted these high school kids. And so on that first night of LT, when we were still checking in, there was a gathering of all the different uh, leaders and volunteers of the time. And so what we did as, as the leaders going through is we went through the entire week's LT agenda. And during that time, I wasn't necessarily prepared, but during that time, they looked at me and said, all right, Frank, so what are you thinking about sharing during the worship night? 
And so I hesitantly told them. I told them that here's my plan. So I wanted to have a cross put on the wall. And then so the worship band would lead in with song. And then in the first break, what I wanted to do was to teach on the power of sin and how it binds us. And then during that time, have all the students write down on a piece of paper that we were going to give them one sin that they were willing to let go of, that they needed to let go of. And then we go through another worship set. And then the second break, I was, and, and on that piece of paper, not to write any identifying features, don't write your name on it, just write the sin. And then during the second break, we're going to ask you to fold it up and then pin it to the cross. And then we had another worship set. And then in the third break, I went and took down those pieces of paper from the cross. I opened them and I read them out loud before dropping them in a bowl of water. You should have seen their reactions when they, said, they heard that was what I was planning to do. And they said, uh, you can't do that. And I'm like, why not? And they're like, well... They're writing their personal sins, and this is really, you know, they're anticipating. They've done stuff like this before where it got burned, it got destroyed, and, but nobody reads it. And I'm like, I know. That's why we're going to do it. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was actually, it was a bit funny if I hadn't felt so many eyes on me and under the gun. And they're like, brother, we love you, and I appreciate your heart, but you can't do this. <laughs> and uh, finally, Tom Short was the one who spoke up, and he's like, Frank, I actually think that'll be interesting. And they're like, really, Tom? Like, and so fortunately, the, the brothers, we knew each other pretty well. And they're like, Frank, we're going to trust you on this one. But we have some real reservations, real concerns. Even on the night of the worship night, as the first set is going on, one of the pastors pulls me aside and says, Frank, are you sure you want to do this? Because you can still pull back if you want to. And I'm like, brother, I am sure we're going to go ahead and do this. That night was one of the most powerful nights I've ever been a part of. And... The effect afterwards, I had one kid come up to me afterwards. He said, Frank, when you sat down and you started opening those sheets of paper and reading those sins out loud, I was furious at you. I felt so betrayed. And then when you went through them, and as more were being read, I realized that other people were struggling with the same sin I was. I felt a sense of relief. He's like, I just became a Christian before coming to LT, and that was the most amazing thing I ever went through. We had this, uh, in one of the nail-down times, we had nail-down times afterwards with guys and girls by different groupings uh, based on where you were in the region, and heard about it the next day that there was one girl who stood up in that time and said, I want to share what my sin was. I struggle with pornography. And she said, I know that's not a sin that typically women share that they're struggle with, struggling with, but I didn't want to hide it anymore. I wanted it out in the open. And she started crying. And then three other girls came up alongside her and says, we struggle with the same thing. And they were just bawling together. Story after story about how powerful it is when, we named, when they named their sins out loud. And I shared, right, with these guys that the reason why I wanted to do this is I think there is a, not I think, I know that when we keep our sins secret, there is a power we give them that can't be unlocked until we let them go. And that's what I wanted to do for these kids that night. So, I want to do something today. I know. 
I'm not going to make you write down all your secret sins to be read out loud up here. But here's what I want you to do. Just between you and the Lord, can you confess it? So seriously, we're going to take a moment. Right now, when I say secret sin, I mean the one that you work hardest to hide and cover up. The one sin that's most covered up with fear and with shame. That's the one I'm talking about. I don't want you to declare it out loud. I simply want you to confess it to the God who already knows what it is. So here's what I'm going to do. In a moment, I'm going to give you a, a, a few moments to bow your heads. I want you to bring to mind that sin, to bring to mind that struggle that you've covered with fear and shame, and I want you to confess it to the Lord who already knows what it is, but you're going to confess it nonetheless. Does that make sense? Good. I want you to do that right now. Bow your heads and take a moment to do that. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must all give account. I have a different version up there. I'm sorry. That's the way I, I memorize that passage. There isn't anything that we can hide from our Lord God. He already knows. For me, I usually find that our secret sin, whatever it is that you confess, falls into one of these categories, some lustful indulgence, some secret lie or deception, or some private transgression from your past. Those tend to be the categories where they fall. And if yours is in there, I just want to let you know you are certainly not alone. You know, we started this morning talking about the hashtag MeToo movement and what it means for all of us if we know good people, and I mean good people, can do bad and disgusting things. What do we do with that? And for us, the answer is that we go to the cross. Both perpetrator and victim can, at the feet of Jesus, experience love forgiveness, healing, and restoration. Because the cross and because the resurrection of Jesus, we have been set free from our past, from our sins, and discover the wonder and blessing of having a renewed relationship with Christ. And maybe that makes that truth, that reality, makes some of you uncomfortable. Maybe it makes some of you think that's not really fair. 
that even a good man who does bad, disgusting things can find forgiveness at the cross. I never said without consequence. David still experienced the consequences of his sin. He still had his kingdom taken from him. He still saw his son kill another one of his sons. He still saw one of his daughters raped. There's a number of things that he saw that was the consequence of his sin. But he found forgiveness, and he found healing, and he found restoration with God. And because of Christ, we can discover that as well at the feet of Jesus. Next week, Andrew's going to share on the aftermath of this story, the story of Absalom, David's son. I look forward to seeing all of you then. Until then, we're going to wrap up with prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. And uh, I thank you for my sisters, for my brothers here, Lord, for the opportunity uh, to not only be a part of this time, to hear your spirit speak to us. Um, and I don't even know what you said to the saints this morning, what specifically is convicted, challenged, poked or provoked in the saints today, Lord Jesus. But we trust that whatever it is, it's according to your plan, according to your desire. And Lord, I pray that whatever sin that is, that we had the opportunity to uncover and unmask Lord, I pray that you give us wisdom about how to move forward with that. God, I know, believe me, I know, Lord, I mean, the tendency is just to stick it right back in that corner again and cover it up again. Lord, I, I just pray that we would choose a different road. Thank you so much for your goodness and grace. Thank you for your salvation. That, Lord, however disgusting we may see one another and evil and wicked, Lord, you saw all of that in us, but chose nonetheless that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And thank you, that is the message of the gospel, that you didn't come to redeem us when we cleaned ourselves up and prettied ourselves up. You came while we were dirty, evil, wicked, and disgusting, and you came to save us because of your great love. Thank you for taking upon yourself the burden of our sin, the baggage of our sin, and rising from the dead to show us that you have victory even over death, Lord. And I pray that for those of us who have put our faith and trust in you, that we'd experience the fullness of what that means. In Jesus' name, amen.